Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Missouri Humanities Podcast and to our latest episode of Season 2, Roots and Routes. Throughout the year, we'll speak with scholars, authors, and enthusiasts alike to explore what has influenced the movement of people into, out of, and within our state, and take a glance at how both chosen and forced migrations and changes in transportation throughout our state's history have helped shape Missouri. The conversation you're about to hear is part one of a two-part episode about Black movement. My guest for this portion is Dr. Brian Jack, a professor of history at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville and author of The St. Louis African American Community and the Exodusters. Let's get started. Dr. Brian Jack, thanks for being part of the Roots and Routes podcast and being willing to share an often unknown piece of history. So let's dive right in. One of your research areas is this group of black migrants called the Exodusters in the late 19th century. And I admittedly had never heard of this moment in history, so I'm very intrigued. So let's start with the burning question. Who were the Exodusters? Okay, well, thanks for having me, first of all. and. Um, uh, a lot of people haven't heard of the Exodusters, so I'm, I'm glad to try to get their story out there. Um, the Exodusters were a group of, of migrants, uh, African Americans who were leaving the South after the end of Reconstruction in 1879, 1880. Uh, there were kind of two waves. One wave that came uh, from Mississippi and Louisiana up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, and then they were heading to Kansas along the Missouri River. And then there was another wave that, that called Texodusters that went from Texas to Kansas, uh, usually on either the railroad or with wagons. Um, and they take their name, the Exodusters take their name from Exodus in the Bible, uh, trying to reach the promised land, which they saw as Kansas. So why Kansas? Kansas, uh, for many reasons, actually. One, it was the home of John Brown. It was known as a, uh, uh, you know, everybody knows, or most people know the story before the Civil War of bleeding Kansas. Kansas was a free state. Um, so Kansas had this reputation of being uh, somewhat unearned reputation of being uh, welcoming to African Americans. Also, the governor of Kansas had um, a man named John P. St. John, which I think just a great name, but um, he had put uh, forth a call saying that Kansas would accept uh, uh, people moving to the state uh, regardless of race or previous condition of servitude. So Kansas was in many ways was seen as this uh, a promised land in some sense. And it was also, um, of course, this is a time when railroads are trying to get people to move west, uh, trying to fill up the land, in, you know, and, and there was this opportunity. People thought there was this opportunity for free land in Kansas. Also, this is uh, in the wake of the Homestead Act. Um, when the government was offering free land to people. So all this kind of combined together to make Kansas a place where people fleeing oppression in the, in the South at the end of the Reconstruction saw as what could possibly be the promised land. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about migration and movement of people, we often think of these push-pull factors. So something pushing them out of a place and another place simultaneously pulling them in. Was this the case for the Exodusters? And if so, what were those push-pull factors? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that because when I, when I talk about this publicly, I always start with the push-pull factors. And as we often talk about too, push-pull factors don't have to be equal, mm -hmm. right? But there were push-pull push factors. The pull factors, of course, are, is Kansas. Like I mentioned, you know, there, uh, people are, are 
trying to get to Kansas in, in particular. Um, but the, I would say the exodus migration is much more about the push factors. And so there were push factors pushing people that at the end of Reconstruction, you have the rise of groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of the White Camellia and these other um, racist paramilitary groups in the South. You have the uh, implementation of sharecropping, uh, the tenant lease system. You have a rise in uh, political violence, um, a rise in lynchings. You have a lack of educational opportunities for African-Americans, a, a lack of political opportunities, lack of economic opportunities. Uh, it's kind of the early stages of Jim Crow segregation and in, in, uh, being formalized across much of the South. And so you have all these push factors that are happening. And, and many of the exodusters were fleeing the South. In, in my book, I, I refer to them um, as they appeared to be more refugees from war than what we think of as like pioneers or homesteaders. Uh, these are folks that in, in many ways are fleeing for their lives, fleeing with the clothes on their backs, and they're fleeing uh, racial violence and, and um, uh, all kinds of different forms of oppression, uh, kind of this beginning of of what Alden Morris calls the tripartite system of oppression, you know, economic, political, social oppression that was going on. Once this movement starts, how did people travel? Um, so, we, I mean, this is not a short distance. You know, you're talking about much of the South, you know, going into Kansas. So we talk about this movement through Missouri and into Kansas. How were people traveling? Um, so the, the, the two waves and the wave that my wave that my book talks about are the exodusters that came from Mississippi and Louisiana through St. Louis. And they primarily came up the Mississippi River on steamboats. So typically people would go to the riverbank, wait for a steamboat to pick them up. Um, it costs $4 deck passage from Vicksburg, Mississippi to get to St. Louis. Dogs were free, children under 12 were free, but this was deck passage. So this, this, these are folks who are, who are literally uh, packed with the cargo on the, on the decks of the, the steamboats as they're traveling up the Mississippi River in horrible uh, weather conditions. The first exodusters arrive in St. Louis um, in late February, early March, and there's snow on the ground, and, and they are, they've been uh, on the Mississippi River in the elements for a week traveling from Vicksburg. So they would travel up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, and then they would travel on the Missouri River on steamboats over to Kansas City, over to the Kansas area. They end up in, many end up in Topeka, Kansas. Different, kind of different places in Kansas um, are, are where they end up, but once they get into Kansas on the, on the Missouri River, then they kind of are spread out through, through different parts of the state. But it's, it's, a, it's a river-borne migration, mm -hmm. the folks who came through St. Louis. So, and you touched on this a little bit, but this is an especially interesting time in American history. The Civil War had ended, enslaved peoples had been freed, uh, very freshly out of Reconstruction era. So what was the climate like for free blacks and formerly enslaved blacks during this time, both in the South, which again, you touched on a little bit already, where a lot these migrants were coming from, but also as they were traveling through Missouri, what was this climate like for, for black people? Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point, really good question. So the, the Union Army has left the South. In many ways, the, the federal government was turning away from uh, the idea of, of reconstruction and, and 
trying to protect people and uh, kind of leaving the South in many ways to its own devices. You see across the South, you see uh, former Confederates, former landowners taking political control again. So African-American men have the right to vote, but exercising that right was, was oftentimes um, uh, dangerous. So through affidavits from the Exodusters and through other, other um, uh, government reports and things like that, there are numerous accounts of Exodusters voting and being intimidated, being murdered, being lynched, for, for not voting the way that groups like the Klan wanted them to vote. There is the institution of sharecropping, uh, so there's very little economic opportunity. So on paper, people are free. On paper, people have their political rights. On paper, they may have economic rights. But in actuality, these rights are being challenged. These rights are being uh, denied. And so they're trying to find ways to to exercise their rights as American citizens. Because, you know, at this point, uh, the, the 14th Amendment has given citizenship, conferred citizenship. 15th Amendment has conferred uh, African-American men the right to vote. But exercising those rights uh, is becoming increasingly difficult in the South at this time. And the Exodusters, it's kind of a concentrated migration. This is not people coming from all over. There are a few different parishes in Louisiana and uh, counties in Mississippi where this is happening, and it's known as the bulldozed district. And bulldozing was essentially a rural riot. So this is where white mobs in rural areas were attacking African Americans, trying to force them uh, to stay on the land and work. Uh, people who um, were exercising their right to vote are being attacked. Uh, in one affidavit, a, a man talks about his brother gets shot over a, a 25 cent debt by white landowners and everybody knew who did it and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Another another exoduster talks about his landowner, the landowner he works for is forcing him to uh, uh, have his cotton ginned at the landowner's cotton gin so he can't make any money. He's going deeper, deeper in debt. And he can't do anything about it because the man who owns the cotton gin, who's the landowner, is also the local sheriff. Also, people are talking about their children aren't having a chance at an education. They don't see, they see that slavery has ended, but they don't see where staying where they are is going to, to lead to better lives. Sure. So they're, they're, you know, in, in the book I talk about, I say that they are exercising the right that every American citizen is supposed to have, which is the right to pick up and start over to pursue happiness, right? That's what we're supposed to be able to do. And that's what the exodusters are doing. Mm -hmm. So as they're moving up, up the Mississippi River, technically out of the South, although I think there's still debate as to whether Missouri is the South or not, right. but you know, out of the deep South yeah. and into Missouri, into Kansas, what's the environment like for them there? Do they experience a lot of interaction with Missouri communities or Missourians, or is it is it pretty, pretty isolated to this river journey. The Exodusters saw Missouri, and St. Louis in particular, as a southern state. Interesting. They call St. Louis the Red Sea. And, and, and one of them, one of the Exodusters is even quoted as saying, this is the Red Sea, and we have to get through the Red Sea to get to the Promised Land. 
because they see Missouri as a slave state. They see St. Louis as a, a slave city. They have in their minds that Kansas is free territory, right? So their experiences in Missouri and in St. Louis in particular are, are very difficult. The, when the exodusters first show up in St. Louis in late February, early March, there's a group that comes in in late February that nobody really kind of notices. They, they, they just kind of blend into the city. And then um, exodusters start arriving in large numbers in early March. And Charlton Tandy, a local civil rights leader in St. Louis, meets uh, this boatload of people down on the riverfront, and he tries to help them get clothing and food and shelter and everything else. Many of the exodusters could only afford passage to get to St. Louis. They can't afford the passage to get to Kansas. And many ha had the belief that the federal government was going to help them. So if they got to St. Louis, then there would be help to get onto Kansas. So they're showing up to St. Louis destitute. St. Louis also, I talk about this in the book, St. Louis at this time was very um, economically tied to the Southern cotton crop. St. Louis had cotton processing plants. And so the business leaders and the political leaders of St. Louis saw the exodus as a threat to, as an economic threat, because it, they felt like this was the start of a wave where the entire uh, black population of the South might leave and there goes all the labor and who's going to pick the cotton and everything else. African-American leaders in St. Louis saw it in a very similar way but as a good thing, as a way to kind of break the, break the domination of the um, Southern landholders. So the political leaders in St. Louis tried to stop the exodus. Uh, the mayor, Henry Overstoltz, he is, he's trying to come up with what he sees as different solutions. One thing he says is he'll take all of the, the exodusters who show up and put them on quarantine island out in the middle of the Mississippi River until his advisors say, well, what if people don't leave Quarantine Island? What if they stay and, you know? They try to charge the uh, steamboats. They start charge the, try to charge the steamboat operators, the captains, with the charge of bringing paupers into the city. And the steamboat captains and the steamboat lines say, no, we're, we're following the Civil Rights Act. These uh, exodusters, these folks have the, the passage to pay, so we, we have to give people a ride if they can pay. Um, so eventually, uh, Tandy kind of resorts to offering no help from the city. Saint the St. Louis kind of business community and the St. Louis political leadership and really the St. Louis white community does nothing to help. And Tandy resorts to having um, the chief of police or uh, officials uh, go down to the riverfront whenever a boatload of exodusters would show up and read a proclamation saying, you're not welcome here, you need to turn around and go back home. He also sends word down to Vicksburg and word, word to Natchez and word on down the Mississippi River. It shows up in the papers down there telling people, you're not welcome in St. Louis, stay there. While at the same time, the African-American community in St. Louis is encouraging the exodus. Mm -hmm. they're, they're organizing they're, they're down at the river riverfront um, welcoming people, um, finding them shelter, finding them clothes, finding them food, buying them tickets to, to help them on to Kansas, and encouraging people. 
encouraging the Exodus. So you get this real um, conflict mm -hmm. between kind of the powers that be in St. Louis and the African-American community in St. Louis. And that's one reason um, I try to frame it in terms of uh, this goes beyond charity. The African-American um, community in St. Louis viewed this as civil rights activity because they're trying to ensure that the Exodusters have this right to move, mm -hmm. this, this freedom of mobility that we're all supposed to have. Um, and so uh, the Exodusters are experiencing uh, kind of the hostility of St. Louis on one hand and, and Missouri, and also the, um, the help and the aid of St. Louis and Missouri on the other hand. The other thing you see is um, the St. Louis African-American community puts out a call around the country uh, and they get donations from around the country um, of clothes, of, of money to help the Exodusters. And a lot of the people who are donating are former abolitionists um, who see this as a continuation of the fight against slavery. So were, were these naysayers uh, successful at all in dissuading people from coming up north. You know, you talk about telling steamboats to turn around, that they're not welcome, sending messages down south. Um, did this dissuade people or were, did they continue on? They continue on at first, but I think, I think eventually it does stop the exodus. A, a combination of things stop the exodus. But this is, a, this is a movement that really only lasts about a year year and a half, and uh, it's approximately 20,000 people who come through St. Louis. So it's not a huge, it's in between 10 and 20,000, depending on what numbers you look at. But So it's not a huge migration. Um, I think what eventually stops it is, one, there's violence, violence down south where mobs, bull, mobs of bulldozers start attacking the steamboats. So when the steamboats pull to pick people up, they pull guns on them and make them not pick people up. There are accounts of exodusters waiting by the river for weeks while they're waiting to get picked up and nobody's picking them up. The bulldozers also attack the, steam, the, the exodusters who are waiting on the river and force them back on the land. So you have that happening. Also word starts trickling back that the exodusters in Kansas, many of them are suffering. Um, these are folks primarily who are coming from cotton growing regions in Mississippi and Louisiana. Again, they're not showing up with, with again, they're, refu they're more refugees than pioneers. They're not showing up with wagons. They're not showing up with, with tools. And many are really suffering in the weather in Kansas and word starts trickling back. The African-American community in St. Louis that sees kind of a larger, a larger uh, issue beyond just the movement of people, sees this as a civil rights issue. There's talk, uh, Tandy and some of the other St. Louis leaders talk about getting, they try to convince uh, the United States government to get steamboats, armed U.S. Navy steamboats, to go down the river and pick up people who are waiting. Supposedly, President Hayes considers that and then gets convinced to not do it. So there's this the struggle over is this going to continue or not and it dies out after about a year to a year and a half by the mid 1880 it's pretty much over the the wave the waves up the mississippi river so this migration is often referred to as the first major free movement of 
of black people following the Civil War. But of course, the numbers pale in comparison to that of the Great Migration that would happen a few decades later. But obviously, this is still an incredibly significant event. You've written a book about this. You've done a lot of research. What kinds of documentation do we have of this period of history? Who holds these stories, and how has this history been interpreted? I see it more the symbolic value rather than the um, the numbers, because it does. It pales in comparison to the five million people who are going to head north during the Great Migration. Um, again, we're talking maybe 20,000. Um, but it is symbolic in that these are folks who are exercising their right to move, right? And these are folks who are challenging um, the implementation of Jim Crow segregation, challenging the taking away of their political rights, and things like that, and exercising their rights as American citizens. So I think that's, I think that's really important. The symbolism of that is really important uh, beyond the numbers. The documentation comes from all, all kinds of places. So Congress did, a, did an investigation called the Voorhees Committee in 1880 at the end of this, um, because there were Democrats in Congress who, who believed that this was all a Republican plot to put black voters in other places. The, yeah, there was a movement of, of people from North Carolina to Indiana about the same time. And so some of the Democrats in Congress saw this as a, as a big conspiracy. So they, there, there was this huge report that broke down, of course, along political lines uh, um, in terms of, of the conclusions. So we have all the, that documentation in the congressional record that I, was, you know, that I had access to. For the exodusters who were coming through, and part of that congressional record is, so for instance, a St. Louis African-American community hired a notary public and took affidavits from some of the exodusters. So we have their words um, as given to the notary about what they were experiencing. And then those are read into the congressional record. Now those are somewhat limited as well because there there's only a couple of dozen and they're all from men. Mm. The exodus was a movement of families. These were not organized colonies. These are families and individuals who are moving. It could even be said there were more women than men who were a part of this. And, and one of the arguments I make in the book is many of the women were the driving force behind this. So as a historian, though, it's only men's voices in these affidavits. Charlton Tandy, when he, when he took these affidavits, tried to interview women. And he says in, the congressional testimony, in his congressional testimony, because he testifies before Congress, that their husbands wouldn't allow it because the women were wanting to testify to their sexual assaults that were happening and the sexual violence that was happening. So Tandy says the men wouldn't allow it, um, but the women wanted to talk about it. And, many of the, and he says that many of the women say, even if their husbands want to turn around and go back, they will not turn around and go back. So we don't have their direct words in the affidavits, but you can glean what they were saying, you know, what they were thinking. There were also uh, newspapers reporters who were, who were interviewing people. And so we have a few newspaper accounts of quote-unquote unnamed women who were talking about what they were experiencing. We also have uh, some named women who were talking about what they were experiencing. One woman um, talked about uh, uh, bulldozers killed her baby in front of her and she's testifying, she's talking about this, this violence. Also the, the community in St. Louis, the relief organizers in St. Louis, and this is another reason I think it was um, 
not just charity, but civil rights activity. They not only raise money to buy the Exodusters tickets to go on to Kansas, they also sent people to Kansas to make sure the Exodusters were doing okay. So we have these, these first-hand accounts where people are being interviewed and, and, and talking about their experiences. Um, there have been a couple of books on the Exodus before mine. Um, Nell Irvin Painter, great historian, she wrote a book called Exodusters, um, and she looks kind of at the Exodus in general and um, a lot of those push reasons. And then um, it's interesting, the same year her, her book came out, within a year, another book came out, um, uh, also called Ex <laughs> Exodusters. Um, my book focuses, but I thought both of those books kind of uh, described it as charity. And they both talked about the Exodus in general. I wanted to focus on what happened in St. Louis, because I saw St. Louis as the key moment in the Exodus because folks were stuck in St. Louis and what's going to happen to them? How are they going to get beyond St. Louis? And so I wrote, I talk about the Exodus in general just to contextualize it in my book, but I focus on the relief efforts in St. Louis and what's happening in St. Louis. And I also try to use the, the Exodus, the experiences in St. Louis to talk about the St. Louis African-American community in 1879, 1880, kind of what's going on in St. Louis at that time as well. Um, because a lot of times people, uh, when we talk about African-American history, they think slavery in the Civil War, and then they think Rosa Parks. <laughs> and and uh, that, you know, 90 years in between uh, doesn't get talked about enough. And so um, I tried to really use this also as a lens to look at what the African-American community in St. Louis was like in the 1870s and 1880s as well. So you talk about firsthand accounts that were taken, the affidavits, um, interviews for, for, the, for newspapers, et cetera. In any of your research, um, is there anything out there in other people's research that they found any sort of primary source materials or anything of the like of Missourians witnessing this event in history or interacting with um, the exodusters as they come, I guess, specifically down the Missouri River. Um, do we see any of that? Is this something that really crossed paths with Missourians as it was happening? Um, beyond St. Louis, not really that much. We don't have a lot of people on the Missouri River talking about it as much. We have a lot of stuff from St. Louis talking about it because it was, it was, it was such an event in St. Louis. We don't, we don't, because the Exodusters weren't really stopping on the Missouri River. They're, they're on the Missouri River from St. Louis, it takes them a few days, they get to Kansas, but they're not stopping off. And the, the, the folks in, you know, uh, Mexico, Missouri, or whatever else, are not really experiencing the Exodus in the same way as folks in St. Louis were. Um, one thing I mentioned in my book, for instance, is um, it becomes almost daily headlines in St. Louis, in the newspapers. The first exodusters that are written about in the newspapers are in early March, and within a month, it's become such a common occurrence that the headline, one, one day by, in, within a month, a headline is, no exodusters showed up today. Like it goes oh, from being, yeah. oh, here, here's a boatload of folks showing up to within a month the headline is, no, nobody showed up today. Yeah. That's how much of a common occurrence it became. Yeah, and so um, I think our, our uh, 
St. the Missourians' experiences with with the Exodus are really concentrated mostly in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and then it's the other end is in Kansas. Sure. And that kind of leads into this this next question. Um, obviously, we know by now that Missouri wasn't the final destination for the Exodusters, um, but it still leaves an impression on the state. You talk about how much of an impact this had on St. Louis at the time, but but what what else do we see um, as an impact on Missouri history? or culture or, or events as a result of this movement? I think, I think what it does is it galvanized um, civil rights leaders in St. Louis in the 1870, late 1870s and 1880s. Um, and one of the arguments I make, and this kind of fits with the roots and roots theme, is a lot of the uh, leaders who were leading the relief efforts were also migrants. And, and St. Louis's pop, black population at that time were a lot of people who had come to St. Louis during the Civil War, right, and after. And so one of the arguments I make was one of the reasons the St. Louis African-American community kind of rallied around the Exodusters so much were they knew what folks were fleeing because they had experienced similar things. They saw it as part of this larger movement for black freedom. They saw commonality with what the Exodusters were going through. Um, especially the way that the St. Louis political leadership reacted. There was a group called the Melanthe Association that was, you know, Brian Melanthe had set up specifically to help uh, migrants to the West, right? And there was the Melanthe home and all kinds of things. So Tandy, when the Exodusters first start showing up, he goes to the Melanthe Association and says, you know, we've got literally thousands of people showing up, we need help. Uh, the association gave the relief effort $100, and that was it. And Tandy calls it out and says, this is racism, this is racial discrimination. He said he knew of individual families, white families that had gotten more money than that. And so they saw this very quickly as, as civil rights activity. And I think that's one of the lasting effects on this because it does, it becomes another issue that the early civil rights leaders in St. Louis can galvanize around. Um, these are the these are some of the same leaders who were working for voting rights leading up to this, and uh, you know, uh, part of the Missouri Equal Rights League and things like that. Tandy was fighting um, streetcar segregation in St. Louis at this time. I mean, there was this was just this was another step in civil rights act, early, early, early civil rights activity. And I think it's important to contextualize it that way. That's one of the impacts for Missouri. So let's um, switch gears a little bit and talk about your work. So you're a professor and an author, Mm -hmm. and you've written fairly extensively about this topic. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the process of writing your book, The St. Louis African-American Community and the Exodusters. I guess to start off, what led you to want to research this specific topic because it is a fairly specific period of history it's it's pretty niche yeah very much so um i'm from kansas originally and i'm from a small town called parsons kansas it's down by joplin missouri we're in the southeast corner of the state there's a very vibrant african-american community in my hometown especially for a small town in kansas parsons has about ten thousand people um i say all that to say parsons was founded as a railroad town for the missouri kansas texas railroad and Parsons was the first stop after um, Oklahoma for the railroad. It went from Denison, Texas to Parsons, Kansas. A couple of years after Parsons was founded as this railroad town, 
Texodusters, African-Americans from Texas, moved into Parsons and stayed and formed the core of this vibrant African-American community in this small town in Kansas. So I grew up knowing that story and knowing about the African-American community in my hometown. And I'd always kind of known that, ex that story of the folks coming from Texas and friends of mine who still had family back in Texas. And this is, you know, 130 years later, things like that. Um, and so when I came to St. Louis U for my PhD, um, I was thinking about, it, it actually started as a paper in a class. Um, I found out about the exodus, the other wave that came up the Mississippi River through St. Louis. And so I started as a paper in a class and it grew into my dissertation. Um, then I became a professor after I got my PhD and, and it became my first book. And it's become something that uh, I'm fascinated in because I consider St. Louis my hometown now. I've lived in St. Louis longer than I've lived anywhere else. So it, it tells a local story that way, but it's also still connected to Kansas where I'm from. Right, yeah. And, and, um, and it's part of my job teaching African-American history, I think, is to um, tell people stories that they don't commonly know, right? And expose people to parts of African-American history, American history that they're not aware of. And, and I think the Exodus story is a good story to do that. So that's kind of how it, how it developed. And what was your what was the the process like? You know, you've talked about these primary sources, um, but you know, where did was that the bulk of your research, or, or what what were you looking for? Um, it it was tons of reading secondary sources, of course, reading William Cohen's book and and um, Nell Irvin Painter's book and the other the other books and all the articles I could find on the Exodus. Um, it's also uh, reading a ton of secondary material about. Um, kind of the end of Reconstruction and, and the importance of black mobility. So like Stephen Hahn's work and just people who were looking at African-American mobility. I also had to, I'm not a biblical scholar at all. I had to dig into the Exodus story Interesting. as well because I knew it kind of, you know, from whatever, but um, had to dig into the, the meanings of the Exodus story, um, especially through African-American theology and things like that. So I had to dig into that as well. Um, and then, uh, kind of getting the the framework of the um of all the secondary sources then it was digging in the the newspapers the ancillary sources and the primary sources um so in terms of primary sources i i did everything from traveling to kansas um to topeka to the kansas uh historical society for the uh john p st john's papers the the governor of kansas's papers and the freedmen's they had a, they had a relief organization in Kansas. So here's, here's the difference. In Missouri, in St. Louis, you had the mayor trying to stop the exodus. And in Kansas, the governor is heading the relief efforts. And so I was digging through like all those primary sources, Charlton Tandy's papers that are at UMSL, the uh, Missouri um, State Historical Society in Missouri and the Missouri um, History Museum uh, Research Center over on Skinker, where you know I was there constantly. Mm -hmm. um, a ton of reading newspapers, and back when I was doing this research, it was all microfilm. It wasn't digitized, so it was literally scrolling through rolls and rolls of microfilm, um, and then going through the uh, congressional reports, which um, probably a thousand pages of congressional testimony. Um, and then my process was, I'm kind of old school, so it was highlight things and then handwrite everything onto note cards, 
thankfully my wife at the time uh, would help me. So she, when I, she and I would go to a coffee shop and I'd hand her a, a stack of highlighted pages from primary sources from newspapers and she'd write, hand write them onto note cards and I'd hand write them onto note cards and uh, did it that way. And spoke at a lot of conferences to get ideas from people. Um, uh, I did, I spoke at one conference um, and talked about the affidavits and I was just looking at them as primary sources. You know, here's what the affidavit said. And uh, a panelist, I'm so glad she pointed this out. Her first question was, where are the women's voices? And this is a while back, and hopefully I know better now, but at the time I was like, well, they're not in, you know, the sources are all men. That's it. And she's like, well, yeah, but find a way to get the women's voices in there. And that helped a ton, mm -hmm. you know, that type of feedback. Mm -hmm. And it, it totally reshaped kind of how I was thinking about the entire, once I started seeing it in this different perspective. It, it really reshaped how I thought about the entire exodus. What's next for your work? Um, what else are you exploring? Are you taking this topic any deeper? And, and how can our listeners learn more? Um, well, I just had a, a different, I kind of, after th this book came out and some other articles about some other stuff came out, I, I kind of switched directions in some sense. Um, I went to school at Alabama before I came to SLU. And we, my first teaching job was in North Carolina. So I got to live in the South uh, um, quite a bit. And it got me thinking about Southern identity, and then moving back to St. Louis really got me thinking about that idea of is Missouri Southern, how do you define the South and all this. And so I did a, I did a book uh, that came out a couple of years ago at the University of Kentucky Press. I edited an edited volume where I was the editor. Um, that looks at, my, my degrees are in American studies, so I really like the intersection of popular culture along with history. And um, it looked at um, films that are historical films and how they show Southern identity around issues of race and civil rights. It's called Southern History on Screen. And it, it basically, it looked at films that came out since roots since 1976 up through 2016 and I had contributors uh, that talked about all these different kind of ways of looking at southern films films that try to show the historical south and and so I was really I'm really interested in that kind of intersection of popular culture and and history um, the project I'm working at now working on now is um, I'm building it's kind of funny as I get later in my career, I'm kind of turning back homeward a little bit again. Um, so I just had an article that came out uh, last year for a journal called the Middle West Review that looks at, it's called The Bitter with the Sweet. And it, looked at, it looks at that African-American community back in my hometown of Parsons, Kansas. And so I went back to the Exodusters, except the folks coming from Texas this time, and kind of talked about the beginnings of this African-American community in this small town in Kansas. And the project I'm researching right now is kind of continuing that. It's looking at segregation in the Midwest and specifically in my hometown. Um, people often think of Kansas, you know, Kansans especially love to think of Kansas as, as being on the right side of history. But you know, well, Brown versus Board of Education, that means that's Topeka, Kansas. That means there's segregation in Topeka, Kansas. And so, um, um, I'm researching kind of the history of segregation in my hometown and um, the segregated schools that were there um, clear into the 60s. 
segregated parks, but it was a different kind of segregation than like Mississippi Jim Crow segregation. People could vote, but they also had to sit in the balcony of the movie theater, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's a field that's a really growing field that's looking at African-American life outside the South and outside the major cities of the Midwest and the North. And it's part of this kind of growing field of Midwestern studies where people are really looking at um, kind of racism as a national issue, not just consigning it to the South, and looking at segregation across the country and the different forms it took. And so I'm looking at, looking at um, that right now. That's what I'm researching right now back in, uh, in Kansas. Really interesting. Yeah, thank yeah. you, thank you. Dr. Brian Jack is a professor of history at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, yeah. and his book is The St. Louis African American Community and the Exodusters. Dr. Jack, thank you again for the conversation and for helping to enlighten me and our listeners about this really interesting topic. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me, and, and thanks for letting me be part of this program. I love the theme this year, so Great. I'm really, so really happy to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Sure, thanks. concludes part one of our episode. Be sure to check out part two launching at the end of this month, where we'll discuss the Great Migration with Dr. Tony Holland. A big thank you to Dr. Brian Jack for telling us all about the Exodusters, and to all of you listening. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please remember to subscribe and lead us a rating, and stay engaged by following us on social media at MoHumanities. For more about our 2023 signature series, visit mohumanities.org slash movement. I'm Caitlin Yeager. Join us next time as we explore more about the roots and routes of Missourians. Mm -hmm.